Our scripture reading comes to us from the Epistle to the Hebrews this morning in chapter 8. We'll just read the entirety of chapter 8. And you can find this on page 1005 of the Bible there next to you in the pew, seated in the pew with you. Um, In the Epistle to the Hebrews, the author has been making the case that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he cites that psalm we just sang. And after making that case, he continues his teaching on the priesthood of Christ, beginning in verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, That the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second." For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by, the, by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And our catechism lesson today comes to us from Belgic Confession, Article 21, and we'll be looking at Article 20 and 21 in our um, sermon this morning, but we'll read together, or I will read for us, rather, Article 21 on the High Priesthood of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, made such by an oath, and that he presented himself and our name before his Father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood for the cleansing of our sins, as the prophets had predicted. For it is written that the chastisement of our peace was placed on the Son of God, and that we are healed by his wounds. He was led to death as a lamb. He was numbered among sinners and condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate. 
though Pilate had declared that he was innocent. So he paid back what he had not stolen, and he suffered the just for the unjust, in both his body and his soul, in such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. He cried, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, we rightly say with Paul that we know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. We consider all things as dung for the excellence of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find all comfort in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made, which renders believers perfect forever. This is also why the angel of God called him Jesus, that is, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. Amen. I have a, a Spotify playlist. Uh, it's just cover versions of songs. Uh, and it's almost 19 hours long. That's a lot of covers. Uh, and I've tried to prioritize creative things, though there are some that I just enjoy, and there are some that if you heard them, you'd be like, this isn't the original. Um, I think of Johnny Cash's version of the song, Hurt. Most people think he wrote that song. He did not. A good cover is often creative. It often takes something that's present in the original song. It, it exaggerates it. It draws it out. It introduces new elements. By a few subtle changes, it can become something very, very different. I bring this up because one of the reasons that I went to the seminary I did is because small changes in theology can reverberate throughout a system. I wanted to go to a seminary that taught the whole system. I had gone to a college that had taught it like a pick-and-choose adventure. You take this part, you take that part, and you cobble together this theology for yourself, and you never think about how things might conflict. I understood back then, even back then, before I went to seminary, that theology is not like going to the grocery store and grabbing what you like. We have to look at Scripture. We have to draw our theology from Scripture. And so we'll discuss today both Articles 20 and 21. And one of the things we see in Article 20 is how we relate Christ's incarnation, fitting for the season we're about to enter, to his priesthood, his work, what he does. We'll see two things. In Article 20, why do we have the incarnation? And the answer will be so that Christ can do his work. Then there's the fruit of our answer to this question. What is his work? What do we mean when we talk about Christ as priest? And in the coming weeks, we'll go through that as we talk about justification, sanctification. We'll talk about him as our only mediator. And to begin with Article 20, why does the incarnation matter for us? We see that his incarnation qualifies him for the work that he is going to undertake. As Reformed Christians, we um, often follow a pattern of talking about not only Christ's person, but his work, and in that order. And that's what we see here in our confession. And especially relevant to today is his atoning work as priest. This is not to downplay the miracle of the incarnation. It is a miraculous event. But it must come alongside and feed into Christ's other work and his ministry 
death, resurrection, and ascension. But there are those, especially Eastern Orthodox folks, who want to place the accent on the incarnation. They heavily emphasize it. They talk about divination, deification, theosis. One way to see the importance of our teaching is to think about what if the accent is shifted? For them, the incarnation is the central act of God. God takes on humanity, he takes on human flesh, so that man can become like God. And their system, union with God in Christ, is the point. And it is mystical, it is ascetic, it's something that we cooperate with. You find the emphasis in orthodoxy on asceticism, on monasticism. You go back to the ancient Eastern fathers, and there are all these biographies of saints who became holier and holier the farther they got away from people. It's easier to be holy when you're not near all these people who are frustrating. They have the Russian holy fool. If you've ever spent time reading Russian novels, you'll encounter the idea of the holy fool, this person who's so foolish. They don't live in the real world. They go around being ascetics and crazy. And that's part of their idea of sanctification and theosis becoming like God, the foolishness of the cross being embodied in their lives as they unite themselves to Christ. Maximus the Confessor is one of their favorite theologians, and he describes theosis, which is how I'll refer to it uh, throughout the rest of this lesson, this way. A sure warrant for looking forward with hope to deification or theosis of human nature is provided by the incarnation of God, which makes man God to the same degree as God himself became man. Let us become the image of the whole, one whole God, bearing nothing earthly in ourselves, so that we may consort with God and become gods, lowercase g, receiving from God our existence as gods. For it is clear that he who became man without sin, citing Hebrews, will divinize human nature without changing it into the divine nature, and will raise it up for his own sake to the same degree as he lowered himself for man's sake. This is what St. Paul teaches mystically when he says that in the age, ages to come, he might display the overflowing riches of his grace. His language probably, if you're raised in a Western church, is foreign, maybe shocking. We don't talk about becoming like gods often. We're not Mormons, and to be fair, neither are they. That is not what they mean. This is why he underlines that human nature will be divinized without changing in the divine nature. We're not becoming God as God is in their system. Yet they believe that as we are conformed to the image of Christ, that is becoming divinized in a way. And this language goes back farther than folks like Maximus. Even Athanasius said, the Son of God became man that we might become God. Now, they don't mean, again, and Athanasius did not mean, like God in a Mormon sense where we're on par with the God who created us. But they mean having a holy and immortal life, being united to Christ, being conformed to his image. But they put the accent on the incarnation. And even theologians in the West have started to appropriate this language. 
Pope John Paul II said the teaching of the Cappadocian Fathers on divinization, theosis, which passed into the tradition of all Byzantine churches and is part of their common heritage. This can be summarized in the thought already expressed by St. Irenaeus at the end of the second century. God passed into man so that man might pass over to God. This theology of divination remains one of the achievements particularly dear to Byzantine Christian thought. If you're on Twitter, if you're an active Twitter person, maybe you've come across Lutheran writer Jordan Cooper. He's written a book uh, trying to appropriate some of these insights, and I appreciate a lot of what he does. But he's written a book called Christification, trying to keep the Lutheran doctrine of justification and appropriate this explanation of some biblical texts. I haven't read the book. I can't say whether he does this successfully. But by and large, the Orthodox prioritize the incarnation. They helpfully note, like theologians in our tradition, that what we're returning to is something more than what Adam and Eve had in the garden. There's still a consummation. And I'll make the provocative statement that we probably agree with them a little bit more than we think, but we still rightly emphasize and stress the atonement, the substitutionary atonement, the penal atonement, the legal atonement. When we start speaking in this way, they get very uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about the atonement in this way. They look on us with skepticism. As we focus on this, they say, you should put the emphasis on the incarnation. Their view of the atonement flows out. They believe that Christ is victorious, and we are united to his victory and his resurrection. But there's not a substitutionary aspect. It flows right out of their view on theosis. Whereas our tradition and our confession today places the accent on the incarnation elsewhere. It's very Western. Last week, Brian mentioned St. Anselm's uh, book, Cure Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. And I encourage you all to pick up a copy sometime soon um, and take a Sunday afternoon and read through it. It's a dialogue. It's, it's very intriguing. I see a lot of parallels to our own catechism and to the Belgic Confession here. And following this Western tradition, our confession rightly sees the incarnation as necessary to Christ's work to taking the sufferings of sin unto himself, paying the penalty he did not owe in our place, making atonement for sinners. Anselm asks the question, why the God-man? And our confession replies, these are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man. True God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. Why is he the God-man? To save humanity through his atoning work. To be a priest for us. To represent us. To offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And this work certainly results in our conforming to Christ's image. In our participation in his resurrection. Our becoming like him in holiness. Becoming glorious. Even sharing in immortality but not in the same way as God, who has no beginning. But this has to flow out of the legal verdict, which we'll hear about next week. Right? It comes on the basis of Christ's atoning work. 
We receive His righteousness. Our confession will point this out elsewhere. We receive His righteousness. He takes on our sin. And Paul never qualifies his teaching on the gift of righteousness, on the gift of the gospel, by making it contingent on an ascetic life or by becoming divinized. And all of this emphasis on the atonement comes to the fore in the article we read today, Article 21, which is printed there in your bulletin, and we'll turn there now. First, what do we mean when we talk about priests? We talk about priests a lot. Maybe it brings to your mind a Roman Catholic priest. Maybe it brings to your mind somebody sacrificing in the Old Covenant. What does he do? He represents the people to God. And he represents God to the people. He is a mediator, a go-between. He facilitates that relationship. When we look in the Old Testament, the temple is God's presence with his people, and the priests maintain the temple and maintain the relationship between God and his people. A priest leads religious services. He offers sacrifices. A priest goes before God on the Day of Atonement into the holiest place to represent God's people. He also represents, as a signal, God's holy requirements to his people. You've probably heard me say, if you've been around a long time, that one of the best ways to think about the temple is as a nuclear reactor. If you don't maintain it, it'll melt down. And the priests have to put on all of these vestments, these, these hazmat suits that mirror the temple, mirror the Holy of Holies, to shield themselves from God's holiness as a type, as a sign. You can't go in on your own. But the priest goes before. He represents the people. He's like the king and the prophet as well. He mediates the relationship God has with his people. He was ordained to that labor. And we see that in our confession. We see that when we speak of Christ, we must note that Christ offered himself. He is both the victim and the priest. Sometimes we sing at communion. It was his body and blood that he sacrificed on the cross, that he offered. This is drawn directly from the scriptures, from places like Hebrews and elsewhere. Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. This is how the scriptures speak of what he does. He appeases the wrath of God by paying what he did not owe. Listen to Article 21. In such a way, right, he does this in such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. Jesus paid that debt. He bore that punishment. Because God's holiness, going back to that Old Testament idea cannot stand sinfulness, rebellion. And we are all, by nature, children of wrath. We're all, by nature, at war with God. And Christ comes in as our priest and represents us before God, giving us His righteousness, taking on our penalty, our punishment. And by that, He reconciles us to God. We are reconciled to the Holy God. We can come before Him, he clothes us with that righteousness. We see that in Romans 4, but also in Article 22, which we'll hear next week, or Heidelberg Catechism 60. And what does our confession remind us? We need seek no other mediator, no other reconciliation. We have Christ. 
All comfort is for us there in his wounds. His priestly ministry is complete and whole. It's full. It doesn't need to be supplemented. And as I mentioned before, as we were about to read our New Testament lesson from Hebrews 8, the epistle has been going through explaining how Jesus can be a priest. He's not a Levite. How can he be a priest? He's from the wrong tribe. It's cited Psalm 110, which we sang. It talks about how there's a more fundamental priesthood than that of Levi. Abraham, after all, offers sacrifices to Melchizedek. And Abraham is greater than Levi. And so here in chapter 8, which we read, it goes on to explain Christ serves the real thing. He doesn't serve the type. Moses saw a sketch of what was in heaven and made a temple on earth. Jesus serves the heavenly temple as the great high priest. That's the most fundamental part of Hebrews here in chapter 8. Jesus serves the true and better thing in a true and better way. He's a priest even greater than Melchizedek. And in what way is he our priest's? He, listen to Hebrews itself, right? It says that he inaugurates by his priesthood a better covenant than the old, the Mosaic covenant, as is specified later in chapter 8. Or in chapter 9, he secures an eternal redemption for his people by his priestly offering. 9.12. 9.14, he purifies the conscience of his people, not just the flesh. His sacrifice is extensive. His purification is extensive. He actually reaches into the inside of a person, not just the outside, not just the symbol, but the reality. In chapter 9 again, verse 15, we see that he redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those done under the law. He redeems from those transgressions. His sacrifice is once and for all. Hebrews makes this point again and again in Chapter 9, verse 26, and chapter 10, verse 12, once and for all, once and for all, final. It goes on to make the point where the Levites had to go in day after day, year after year, offer sacrifices continually. And Jesus does it once, and it is done. He does not offer himself more than once. He does not need to offer himself more than once. All of those repeated sacrifices were to picture him the end of chapter 9, we see that Christ will return to save those waiting for him. Chapter 10, by his sacrifice, he perfects for all time those being made holy, those being sanctified. His sacrifice completes that process. It makes it whole and perfect. Those being sanctified will be sanctified, as Paul will speak about the golden chain. Those whom he calls, he justifies, he sanctifies, and he glorifies. There is a certain future aspect to our faith. At our deaths, we will be holy, fully holy. His sacrifice and his cleansing work will be applied to us fully. We will put off the old man and put on the new man in a way we cannot even imagine today. And where does Hebrews end with this when it ramps up into its application section. What is the therefore to Christ's priesthood? It comes in chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places, the heavenly temple itself, 
by the blood, the offering, the priestly offering of Jesus Christ, our mediator. Through our better mediator, we even today can come to Mount Zion. That's how the author to the Hebrews will go on to talk about what they're doing as they hear that sermon. You are approaching the heavenly temple now in church. Paul will say we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in that heavenly temple. He will say that our life is hidden there with Christ, in Christ, with God. And so we do not shrink back. We have confidence because of our mediator. We have confidence because of our Savior. We don't have to go through life hoping that we're holy enough, hoping that we've been ascetic enough, hoping that we've united ourselves enough mystically to Christ. We have confidence that He has done it, that we can trust in Him. And as our catechism reminds us, that we already as Christians share in His anointing, His anointing as prophet, priest, and king. He's given us His own name. We have confidence to come before Him, knowing that He has been gracious to us, that He has clothed us in His righteousness as our high priest. And so we come back to why the God-man? Because we needed that heavenly high priest. Why did we need that heavenly high priest? To reconcile us with the holy God by clothing us in His righteousness. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that your Son took on flesh. We thank you that your Son came to be our only high priest and mediator, to represent us before you, to bear the punishment that he did not owe. We are grateful for this better covenant that he serves and inaugurates, that we cannot break ourselves. We are grateful for his work that is for us, that cleanses us, so that even now we can boldly come before you in this prayer, in Christ and by the Spirit. And we ask that your Spirit would work that confidence to come before you in us. Holy God and Father, we ask this, that we may trust that you are both the Almighty God, creator of the universe, and our faithful Father in Christ. Give your spirit and work gratitude in us so that we may live grateful, humble, and holy lives in this present age and continue to put off the old man. We ask all these things in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and by the spirit who unites us to him. Amen.